My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 14 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with an influential thought leader of our time, Charles Eisenstein. Dominant reality is unraveling, like threads are peeling off of it. And they're desperately trying to hold it together by saying, don't even look outside this reality. How much of what's good and beautiful has to die before we turn to a different choice? And I guess the medicines are here to empower our choice with a clear view of what's real. And it's the trust that, that if I show you what's real, you will choose differently. That's what the medicines are saying. Any effective activism in the world has to correspond to a kind of inner activism because the way the world is, is projected into the way we are and vice versa. Inner and outer change happen in tandem. To think that our impact on the world is the things that we make happen. And one thing that psychedelics can open us to is the presence of a larger intelligence, which then brings up a different kind of leadership, a different kind of change agency, which is no longer imposing our will on the world, for which you have to have a plan. But instead, it's participating in a process of change. That starts not with a plan, but it starts with listening. It starts, well, it really starts with first reconnecting to this intelligence and then learning to listen to it and be guided by it. So it's totally opposite the um, industrial or Newtonian mindset of making something happen. You know, you take this, you go on this trip, you know, you have this incredible experience, then you're back into your reality. Well, our reality is socially held. Like we hold each other in reality. And if we have enough people in our sphere who are, who have experienced a different reality, if there's enough of us, we can hold each other in that reality and remind each other that acting from this place of interbeing is not crazy. Like you weren't imagining things, this is real. I first became aware of Charles Eisenstein's work through his book, Sacred Economics, and then The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, Sacred Activism. And if you haven't yet read his incredibly well-written essays, I highly recommend tuning into what he's putting out there, which you can find on his website, charleseisenstein.org. And his thought leadership and the narratives that he weaves have played a fairly large and influential role in my own psychedelic experiences and my own thought leadership, which ironically enough, I just realized that I was reflecting back to him some of my own thinking that was actually originally influenced by his thinking. And you can also tune into some of the threads of his influence that I weave through my first two solo episodes. And I'll be speaking more to this in next week's episode, which is going to be my third solo episode release. And so Charles dropped a lot of nuggets of wisdom throughout this entire conversation right through until the very end. I mean, we traversed through a lot of territory. We talk about how psychedelics has influenced him as a thought leader, his recent ego death experience, 
I ask him if he thinks we need to experience a full collapse of our systems for something new and better to emerge. We talk about his perspectives on psychedelics as our best bet to help us move through this time of transition. I mean, there's so much in this conversation, how we navigate through this time of incredibly non-cohesive cultural narratives, his take on letting go, trust, truth, and courage. And of course, we talk about moving from the story of separation to the story of interbeing and the importance of viewing and experiencing our psychedelic experiences through the lens of the multidimensionality of relationship. And so before we dive into this conversation, just a couple of quick things that I wanted to mention. I am now fully immersed in the clubhouse reality and have just launched the Psychedelic Leadership Club and would love for you to join me there. And one of the things I'm really excited about is that after I release an episode on the podcast, I'm going to be inviting guest speakers to join me in real-time conversations in Clubhouse, where you can join in and be a part of a real-time dialogue with us, asking questions and also offering your own perspective as well. And so I'm Live Free Laura D on Clubhouse, or you can just look up the Psychedelic Leadership Club and make sure to follow that so you get notified of all the talks that we're going to be doing there. And I'm also about to announce my dates for my next three-month group coaching program called Microdosing Mastermind. And this is a program for entrepreneurs, thought leaders, creators, pro athletes, and executives who want to cultivate, embody, and walk the path of heart-centered leadership to influence real change. And it's learning how to leverage a mindful microdosing practice as one tool amongst many to learn how to cultivate an inner vision and become the person who can literally transmute that vision into reality. And this program weaves together a variety of modalities, including mindset coaching, somatic coaching, resilience training, creative problem solving, which is now being called the number one most important skill set we can learn to foster for navigating this incredibly volatile and complex world that we face. It weaves together neuroscience, psychedelic research, the science of flow states with the wisdom of Eastern philosophy. And this program will help you cultivate daily practices like meditation and movement, breath work, and even cold plunges that help you get out of your own way, tap into flow, and literally design and construct your life to become a launch pad for inspired action and inspired creation. And I'm weaving in some phenomenal guest speakers into this program, as well as weekly integration calls where we can all be supporting and learning from each other. And so this program is for advanced microdosing practitioners. And if you'd like to join but are new to microdosing, you'll need to complete a month-long prerequisite course before applying for the microdosing mastermind. And so the dates are looking like June, July, and August, but I'll be finalizing the start and finish dates this week. And you can find all of those details on my website, livefreelauraD.com, on the microdosing tab. And I'm so excited to be featuring Shyla Ray's music at the end of this episode. I'll be leaving you off with one of her wonderful songs called Existence. All right, without any further ado, here is my fascinating conversation with Charles Eisenstein. 
All right. Well, welcome, Charles Eisenstein. You know, I just want to start by saying thank you so much for all the work that you do. I've been admiring your work for so many years now, your writing and your speaking and your capacity to communicate really complex ideas has played such an enormous and influential role in my life as I aspire to cultivate my own path of thought leadership, specifically in the psychedelic space. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Yeah, well, that's, uh, I appreciate those, those kind words. And I'm just happy to, you know, be on any, like anybody who's a psychedelic activist, I feel like is in my tribe, because I think that these medicines are essential for the the transition that that we all sense is possible and that we that we want to see in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. So, mm. yeah. I'm so curious to just start by asking you, you know, how have your direct experiences with psychedelics and sacred plant medicines directly shaped your thinking as a thought leader? Um yeah, it's not like I had you know, direct visions that I'm then describing directly. Uh, it's more that, I mean, I guess the, the the most impactful psychedelic experience I've had until recently um, was uh, an LSD trip when I was 22, which totally confirmed a suspicion that I didn't even know that I had. But when I had the experience, I recognized that I'd always been waiting for something like this to happen. Mm-hmm. And that suspicion was that reality and self and mind and possibility are much, much bigger than what I've been told. Mm-hmm. So like part of me, when I had that experience and and came down from it, I was like, yeah, I knew it. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. I knew it. I knew that this it wasn't just this, just this narrow ghetto of reality, mm-hmm. but but that I, so it was like this confirmation that um, without that, I don't think that I would have had the courage to defy reality as I'd know as I'd been told it. Mm-hmm. You know that that secret suspicion would have remained a suspicion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said until recently. Do you feel like sharing recently what happened? Um, yeah, I've had a, a really powerful medicine experience um, just like a month or two ago that um, it's kind of this underground thing. Like, I don't even know what the medicine is, hmm. um, but it was really powerful. I, I, it was a, an experience of within minutes of of total ego death, you know, like Charles Eisenstein flew out the window like like a scrap of paper out of a hundred mile an hour car, like gone. And and in that fleeting moment, part of my mind was like, oh, but this isn't real. This is just a, a chemical, you know. But then a split second after that, it was like, no, that wasn't real. Like Mm -hmm. that, Charles Eisenstein, that whole lifetime, that whole identity, that is what wasn't real. This, what I'm experiencing now, this is real. Hmm. And it's kind of hard to, I mean, people listening who who have done psychedelic work understand what I'm talking about when I say that it's like, it's a cliche, you can't really put it into words. Mm -hmm. And sometimes 
I've noticed that the attempt even to put something into words can be a way to try to control it, to mm -hmm. try to normalize it, to try to fit it into the categories that the words represent mm -hmm. that I came in with. And, and, and it's a, it can be, not always, but it can be a way to um, confine the medicine, to try to master the medicine rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying like never tell your trip story or something like that, mm -hmm. but I guess it's more of like, I don't want to try to understand it mm -hmm. too thoroughly. I don't want to try to explain it. I don't want to try to, to fit it into a tidy box and, oh, here's what it is. Here's what it meant. Mm -hmm. um, maybe in five or 10 years, I'll have a clearer answer to that, to, to, to that. And I'll be able to say, yeah, here's what it meant. Like I could say about that LSD journey when I was 22, mm -hmm. you know, that was 30 years ago. Like I, I, I can say now what it was in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, let's just go right off the deep end into ego disillusion. You know, we know that psychedelic experiences can disrupt what we call our sense of self, but also, you know, what you call the defining mythology of our civilization, the story of separation. And, you know, we can go into these journeys and have these experiences of, of deep interconnection and what you call interbeing. And I love that term so much. And yet afterwards, we're thrust back into the matrix of institutions that were literally designed for a different era, a different time that we don't live in anymore. What advice do you have for people, especially leaders who are really at the forefront of trying to contribute to paving a new path forward, but feel oftentimes, you know, we're up against so much and it's easy to lose hope and to feel cynical. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have two pieces of advice that totally contradict each other. One. So, so yes, like I'm well familiar with this despair even that, that, you know, you come, you, you see something and it doesn't even have to be through a psychedelic experience, mm -hmm. but but I'm given a glimpse or an experience in one way or another of what the world could be, what I could be in that world, what's possible, the true vastness of reality, of of our capacities as human beings, et cetera, et cetera. Like you see that, and then you come back um, to a world that lives as if that didn't even exist. Mm -hmm. And then because all of my reference points are in that world, and all of my conditions, my conditioning circumstances, the expectations around me, the um, acceptable behavior in that society, it's all defined by, by those institutions. And so I snap back into conformity with it as well. Mm -hmm. Like I am not separate from my conditions. This is when, when you invoked the word interbeing, uh, which I believe was coined by Thich Nhat Hanh um, originally, but but interbeing, what it really means is that you are relationship. You're not a separate being having relationships. You are the totality of relationship. Mm -hmm. So, so it's so. This is one piece of advice: is actually don't be too hard on yourself for not being able to hold the psychedelic state after the medicine is gone. Like don't. And, and don't don't beat up on yourself for for snapping back into conformity and have some mercy on yourself because boy mm -hmm. that is a painful thing to have that that knowledge 
that and that state of being in this like shrinking little bubble inside of you that that just diminishes and diminishes and diminishes until you don't even like maybe it's not even there anymore mm-hmm. it's painful mm-hmm. like that cut off i mean it's better to never have known god at all than to have seen god and then be cut out cut off mm-hmm. from it so like that's the one piece of advice is yeah it is hard and even and then the, the second piece of advice is stop feeling sorry for yourself and just do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and ultimately, these two are, are one because, yeah, this, this, this shrinking bubble, because you can't actually unsee it once you've seen it. Mm-hmm. And the experience operates on you. And part, in fact, even the despair, the agony of the cutoff of being cast out of paradise once you've seen it, that is part of it working on you. Because you have to be shown the um, reality of your condition here. Ordinarily, we make hell palatable through all kinds of distractions and delusions. And medicine can remove those. Mm -hmm. So the initial phase or part of the integration can be an intensification of the experience of hell. Now, why do I say hell? I'm not saying that there's not a lot of beauty and joy on offer in this world that we are born in. I say hell in the sense of, it's actually a very classical sense uh, of perdition. Mm -hmm. You know, the term perdition that used to be a synonym for hell and, you know, Pilgrim's Progress and stuff like that. Uh, perdition literally means a state of being lost. So the experience of being lost intensifies. The experience of disconnection becomes more intolerable when you've already, when you've experienced connection. Because, because we, this society is actually all about disconnection. It's built on disconnection. It's built mm-hmm. on separation. Mm-hmm. It's in so many ways, economic, um, infrastructural, you know, it, it, it puts us in these little boxes, metaphoric and literal boxes. Mm-hmm. So, so this is the separation upon which our whole civilization is built. But, but we're, we're, we're acclimated to it like a fish in water. Mm-hmm. And that, um, that, that knowledge that there is a state of greater aliveness and greater beingness that comes through the restoration of relationships. That knowledge is what I referred to before as like a secret suspicion. Mm. We don't know what we're missing. Mm -hmm. And so this acclimatization process is a process of of addiction and distraction and -hmm. and pretense, all the things that we use to cope in modern society. Mm -hmm. And, And the medicine it uh, makes those inoperative. Mm-hmm. So the so then like we know mm-hmm. like oh, I was right. Secretly, it wasn't supposed. To, it's not supposed to be this way. There is something more. Mm-hmm. And 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 but I, even knowing that, how do I get there? Mm-hmm. Like I might feel incapable of getting back to mm-hmm. that place with everything that I know, and I can remind myself of all those teachings. 
and I can I can discipline myself to do my practices, and still, I don't know how to get back. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, for most people, it's um, an inevitable stage. It happens sooner or later, and it is a stage. But me telling you that it's just a stage won't help, because mm-hmm. in that stage, it, the logic of it is total. It's consuming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things like on a really practical level that I personally struggle with, and I'm so curious how you navigate this as well, is like for people who do really want to influence real change, all of a sudden we're still operating within the systems. And now one of those big systems is like social media and technology and sort of like the the bar is feels like higher and higher and higher in terms of, you know, having influence. And in some ways I have moments of like, yeah, maybe I could just be just as much influence gardening every day and letting it all go and not doing the podcast and getting on Clubhouse now and all of the things that do bring a sense of inherent joy. I love communicating and speaking and writing. And then it gets to a point almost where it like tips over and it's like, wow, this is a lot to carry. (laughs) Do you struggle with that at all, especially with technology and just the amount like you put out so much content it's like really amazing, actually. Yeah, where do you find that balance in your own life? Oh, I don't think I find that balance. I think I I vacillate from one imbalance to another imbalance. So, yeah, very flattering of you to think that, but um, I'm probably the last person to ask about how to balance that. You know, I, I see... It's not so much about, for me, it's not just about getting into nature, like going for hikes. I mean, what do you do in nature? That that only meets a very, very small edge of what I really want, which is to be in full relationship to the beings around me. Mm-hmm. It's And that relationship is not the relationship of I look at them. Uh, where Where we came from, hundreds or thousands of years ago, was a very intimate relationship with the beings around us, using them for food, using them for medicine, observing their life cycles, uh, being, you know, stung by them, being scratched by them, like, like, you know, having a lifetime of stories that refer to them. Mm-hmm. These are multidimensional relationships. Uh, and I, I get... Yes, it does help me to get out into the woods. Um, I do that sometimes. But there's part of me that's like, but why? You know? And, and like, I, like, for that part to be nourished, I want to be somehow taking care of the woods. You know, I want to be interacting with the woods, not just leaving no trace, but leaving a positive trace. Mm-hmm. And this points to a universal need in human beings, which is to serve life, Mm -hmm. to be in relationship to life, to serve life. And I I wouldn't say that, that, you know, Zoom and podcasts and and social media are outside of that service. Um, But I I, I really resonate with, with, you know, the, the train of thought you were going down. Like, I get that too. Like, like knowing that, that change, change in this world is not a function of 
how many followers you have and how big your audience is. Like that mindset is the mindset of separation. It's the mindset of domination. I have more than you. I'm going to make a big change. But who are the really powerful people on earth? It's the people who go out in some direction. I mean, we're talking about psychedelic leadership here. I want to say this because leadership is a function of courage because you're going in a direction. That's what a leader is. You're going, you're the first one to go somewhere. Well, becoming a, you know, popular podcaster, like there's a map for that. You're not a leader just by doing that. I'm not saying that if you do that, you're not a leader, but doing that does not make you a leader. Mm -hmm. What makes you a leader is doing something from a guidance that's not already part of the general prevailing belief system. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the kind of thing we need right now. We need people to follow that impulse and be like, yeah, I'm going to spend five years learning to communicate with nature devas uh, and learning to plant by the moon. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I'm, I've, I've recently reread um, Fukuoka's uh, classic One Straw Revolution, mm -hmm. the Japanese farmer, you know, who quit a prestigious agronomy job and went back to the family farm and and learned how to farm with this minimum of effort in this incredibly elegant way that didn't use fertilizers or chemicals or even compost and just basically letting nature do the work with these minimal interventions. The, and the deeper his understanding, the more minimal his intervention could be. And you know, equaling the yields of like the most industrialized high-tech farms. And he had, he was not doing it to change the world. Yet, after 20 or 30 years of total obscurity, people start coming. People start learning from him. He writes a book. It's a bestseller. And his influence now has rippled out over the entire planet. Mm -hmm. If he had set out with the agenda of, I'm going to become famous, mm -hmm. I'm going to become an opinion leader. And how do I do that? What do I put in service to that? Well, I have like, then you're actually not serving. Like you're not going to do anything new that way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I love that. I love that, that story. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I, I also just love the concept, you know, you speak about this. I also uh, read Yuval Noah Harari's work that the stories we tell create our reality. And I'm so curious your thoughts around this extreme non-cohesiveness in cultural narrative, which of course is very different than even a few decades ago. It's like the cultural narrative was a plate and that just got smashed to the ground. And it puts us in this interesting juxtaposition of division yet possibility. It's like on one hand, like each space between the broken piece now becomes an opportunity to not just adopt the cultural narrative, but to discover like what's true for me. And yet on the flip side, people are more divided and polarized than ever before. What's your perspective on this? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is like reality has splintered into many, many shards. It used to be that, that even if people had disagreements, they at least agreed on what is a valid source of facts. Mm -hmm. And 
they could refer to those facts in an argument and persuade each other. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I agree that this is a fact. Maybe I didn't know it, but but that's a valid source of information. That's a valid, like they held in common uh, knowledge, like sources of knowledge. And we don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you know, one person will cite cite evidence from one source and the other will say, well, that's not valid. Has that been fact-checked? You know, that's, that's conspiracy theory. Uh, here's what's valid. Even the New York Times is telling us, if you read anything disturbing, basically. Did, did you read this article in the New York Times? It was like four or five days ago, basically saying critical thinking is leading us astray. And if you read anything, uh, any dissenting opinion, anything disturbing, go to Wikipedia first and check out the source and make sure that it's okay before you waste any time in it. And then they gave the example of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. It's like, you don't need to read, this is what the Times article said, you don't need to read his stuff on on vaccines, for example, just go to Wikipedia and it says he's a conspiracy theorist. Problem solved. So basically, um, this is a, it seems like there's a kind of a desperation in that. It's like the the dominant reality is unraveling, like threads are peeling off of it. And they're desperately trying to hold it together by saying, don't even look outside this reality. Mm-hmm. And some of these threads, it's not like every one of these threads is the truth. Mm-hmm. Like all of these conspiracy theories, they can't all be true because they contradict each other. Like, But I can't say that any one of them is patently absurd. It's only It only seems absurd from within the core narrative, which defines it as absurd. So yeah, like how do we communicate now across these gaps? This is been something I've been thinking about a lot because I, I've noticed like a narrowing, it's like I'm standing on a shrinking iceberg. Because um, mm-hmm. I've held countercultural positions for 20 years. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the information that I can cite to um, argue for these things is getting exiled uh, into the forbidden realms. Um, sometimes, like, you know, in the form of videos getting taken off YouTube. Like, I, for example, I've been writing about homeopathy for a long time. Not that much, but I cite homeopathy as an example of something. I'm like, hey, you know, here's a medicine that is based on a very different mythology of self and world that says that the inner and the outer are connected, that any condition in the human being is mirrored by the, by a substance in the universe. And this can be used for healing. So I, fine, as long as it's theoretical, I can still say that. But if I say, hey, we should um, devote even 1% of the research money going towards vaccines to homeopathic uh, treatments for COVID, if I say that, I put it on YouTube, like that can get taken down. Hmm. And it probably will get taken down because it is um, uh, crime think. You know, it's it's... Um, yeah, so I guess I don't have the answer to your question. Uh, I don't really know what to do about it, I th- I, but it's occurred to me, maybe I, I write fiction. You know, maybe I, um, instead of shouting louder at those who are in a different reality, like if I do that, their experience is of me shouting. Hmm. And you see this online, you're hysterical their experiences of me shouting. So 
Yeah, I appreciate maybe that. Maybe it's, you know, yeah. Maybe we don't try to convince mm -hmm. sometimes. Maybe maybe there's other ways of being and other ways of communicating. Mm -hmm. I could say more about that, but I think I'll pause and see what you want to add. Yeah, it's just interesting. You know, uh, on my last solo episode, I also do release solos for this uh, podcast. I released one called Truth Triggers and Getting Right with Yourself. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that as we're in the midst of so much chaos and upheaval and this great tide of change is happening, that we're also witnessing an explosion of interest in psychedelics and plant medicines that offer us really, it's like they're reaching out a hand and saying, hey, maybe instead of focusing outward, let's go inward and let's look at what where we're out of alignment in our own lives and let's get right with ourselves as a primary pathway towards influencing change around us. Um, but it is interesting to just riff on this around, yeah, this time of finding what's true for ourselves. And instead of shouting at other people where there's just so much division, finding what's true for each of us and then owning that from a place of integrity and kindness and with the intention of looking yeah. for common ground to stand on so it's like holding the juxtaposition yeah. of the division towards <clears throat> unity in a sense. Yeah, boy, I've been around the block on that. You know, um, when I say something like that, and I don't like, I'm not actually advocating withdrawing from collective life, mm -hmm. withdrawing from political, social community engagement. But I do think that any effective activism in the world has to correspond to a kind of inner activism because mm -hmm. the way the world is, is projected into the way we are and vice versa. Inner and outer change happen in tandem. Mm -hmm. But when I say anything like that, you know, then in this current political climate, I, you know, um, accused of being, you know, a white privileged male who, mm -hmm. yes, you have the luxury to do inner work, but a lot of people don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you are by just focusing on inner work and not being a vocal anti-racist, anti-this, anti-that, mm -hmm. you are actually enabling all of that to happen because silence is violence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, get off your ass and, um, you know, stop resting in your privilege. Like there's that narrative mm -hmm. that I think is a misunderstanding of what I'm saying, because it's not, it's not an escape from action. Like the more that, that we heal the, um, heal the story of separation and the experience of separation within ourselves, the more compassionate we become. Uh, the more able in the world we become to to affect change, um, and 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 a lot of people like you know it's not like they go into spirituality uh, to avoid engaging the world. A lot of people come to spirituality or come to psychedelics after they've burned out. They tried really hard using the tools available to them, using what their, their received tools and their received worldview. They've tried really hard to, to, to stop the violence. They've tried really hard to change the world. 
and it didn't work. You know, they worked for peace in Palestine for 20 years. They worked, I mean, so many stories where they tried and tried and tried and they burned out and they realized that there is a higher level of effectiveness that also might be less visible and, and less celebrated and less like it doesn't um, you don't get the the affirmation of other activists necessarily for doing this kind of work mm-hmm. but it is on a 500 year time scale mm-hmm. that we can sense it's more powerful mm-hmm. because this you know the, the 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 machine that we live in has tremendous momentum i've taken some solace recently in in understanding like this has just got to play itself out. I can't stop it. I tried to stop it. I was writing about the dangers of, you know, biomedical security a long time ago. Uh, like, and when this whole COVID thing happened, I'm like, ah, oh, I knew this was going to happen. I tried to stop it. Uh, this obsession with safety, you know, this sacrifice of all other values for the sake of, of minimizing risk, mm-hmm. like, like so much that I, that I've been dreading and it's happening, you know, and that, that sent me into quite a tailspin of despair, but, but realizing that, yeah, this has to play itself out. And a lot of the work that we're doing, maybe it's a planting a seed in the future. Maybe it's operating on a very long time scale. Mm-hmm. And even if it is not on a long time scale, like maybe the things that we're doing, we don't know it. But in 10 years, the world will be totally transformed. But we can't see that from the linear mind. We can't predict how that's going to happen. I mean, we can make a scenario, but usually there's an element of magical thinking, like an element of, and then everybody's consciousness changes. There's a shift in content. There is, like, how do I make that happen? I cannot make that happen. That is the, 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 that phrase, that's a key pivot. To think that our impact on the world is the things that we make happen. Mm -hmm. And one thing that psychedelics can open us to is the presence of a larger intelligence, Mm -hmm. which then brings up a different kind of leadership, a different kind of change agency, which is no longer imposing our will on the world for which you have to have a plan. Mm -hmm. But instead, it's participating in a process of change that starts not with a plan, but it starts with listening. Mm -hmm. It starts well. It really starts with first um, reconnecting to this intelligence, mm-hmm. and then learning to listen to it and be guided by it. Mm-hmm. So it's totally opposite the um, industrial or Newtonian mindset of making something happen. If you need to make something happen, then first you have to become powerful, mm-hmm. and then you're just like doing that what everybody else has been doing. Mm-hmm. I've got to get a lot of money first because I because if I don't have a lot of money, I'm not going to be able to scale it up. I'm not going to be able to do a big thing. Mm-hmm. So then all of a sudden you're competing for a lot of money with other people who also think, who are telling themselves that it's all for a good cause. Mm-hmm. This is what um, George Orwell described in 1984. The, the goal of the party, he said, was was the greater good. And to do that, they needed power. So power becomes the ends. It starts as a means and it becomes the end. More power. So we're just back in the same 
playground as everybody else when we buy into making change happen. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not that our 3D capacities are never used, or that they're not useless, but we have to understand that the scope of this problem, the scope of the illness on Earth, is beyond anything that we can address through our plans and our force. Mm -hmm. Do you think that psychedelics and sacred plant medicines are like at the sort of forefront of quote unquote, our best bet <laughs> for helping us through this time? Yes. Yeah. There, you know, there, there's one of the, one of the mythologies that I explore is the new world order mythology, you know, where there's an evil cabal of Illuminati maybe, you know, reptilian aliens, you know, satanic forces, et cetera, et cetera, that have the world in their grip. And then um, then there's, in some of these mythologies, there's also the guardians. They're the, the, the benign uh, angelic extraterrestrials and, and these other forces. Now, this whole setup, this whole mythology of good versus evil, I think is ultimately part of the problem. However, um, I can enter that mythology, but then I think, okay, how, okay, so they're these guardians. Let's say that they're these guardians that are here to help humanity transition past this initiation, here to help us become, uh, to, to reach our potential and to become full citizens of the galaxy, okay? How do they actually intervene? It's not that they, they, they it's not that they contend with the negative violent forces at their own game. It's not that they're going to swoop in with superior force to those and, and, you know, come in and arrest all the Illuminati and the, you know, human trafficking elites and all this kind of stuff. The way that they intervene is that they, they, well, one way that they intervene is that they send us medicines mm. that have, just an enormous impact. I mean, our, like the 60s, as we know it, the 60s, that happened because of LSD. Like that entire cultural transformation, that never would have happened if it weren't for psychedelics. Mm -hmm. So, and if you look at the history of LSD, I mean, like, you know, it was discovered pretty much by random. But then one could make a case that, you know, look what happened subsequently the forces that be, we had the war on drugs, you know, we had mass propaganda. A lot of the hippies went on to become brokers. <laughs> it's like, and, and so yes. some people call this the third wave, the psychedelic renaissance. Like, is this, is this different? Yeah. One medicine wasn't enough. I mean, you know, we're, 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 we're talking about uh, healing a, a thousands of years old uh, process. Like that, I mean, or I mean, it's not even healing. I, it, it's it's a a process of separation that's reaching one extreme and a further extreme and a further extreme in our time. Mm -hmm. But it goes back the the mindsets, the institutions, uh, the 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 perceptions, like the beliefs, like it, it. These inhabit us on an unfathomably deep level. One medicine, they can show us something, but they don't automatically in a split second undo all of that. Mm -hmm. Like you come down from that trip and you are yourself again, almost. Mm -hmm. 
like, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're still, you know, in your family, you still have your same friends, you still have your same job. Like it doesn't magically change any of that. The guardians don't work that way. They don't come in and magically change things, mm-hmm. but they seed a process of change. So yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a lot of the, the tech tyrants of our time, you know, they took LSD and so forth, but, but still it opened a door that then makes the next door available and the next door available. And these, by the way, also this doesn't fit necessarily into linear time. Mm-hmm. Like this intervention could have been initiated thousands of years ago for seeing exactly what's happening today, as mm-hmm. the, is the case with a lot of the traditional plant medicines, mm-hmm. uh, ayahuasca, iboga, um, psilocybin, right? Like these, these weren't suddenly invented in the 1930s or mm-hmm. 1940s or 1950s, <clears throat> but they were not in reality, mm-hmm. not in the dominant reality. Mm-hmm. They might as well have not existed. And they only came in <clears throat> when when the psychic conditions were ready for them. Mm-hmm. And so this is, you know, still happening. Mm-hmm. The psychic conditions have been evolving. And, and the earlier medicines like LSD, you know, like mescaline, they prepared the collective field for some of the medicines that have been coming in more recently. Mm-hmm. And the one that I was talking about earlier, I think is gonna be one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and uh, right now there's, there's um, you know, various questions about supply and like, you know, integration and stuff. It's not really ready to be, um, to be let out, to be let loose, mm-hmm. I think, but it will be soon. Do you think yeah. that we are going to need to see a full collapse to rebuild something new? I don't want to get too deep into the COVID rabbit hole, but we're like in an interesting sort of second part of the COVID where it's like so many people are celebrating like, yes, this is the collapse. And now it's kind of like, oh, you know, things are still kind of chugging along, <laughs> like maybe not really the full collapse where yep. we're, we're pulling through, you know, what's your, what's your perspective on that? And do you just trust the process? No, I don't just trust the process. I'm not quite there yet. Uh, I agonize over the process. I cling to things and I'm only shaken loose by great force. Um, you know, there's a th- it's not actually wrong to hold on to the old collapsing reality, you know, to desperately cling, to desperately try to make that relationship work to desperately try to, to, to hold on to what you've known. In fact, the muscles that you get doing that make you strong. Mm-hmm. Eventually though, you have to let go. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, Gandalf hanging by the bridge, you know, like, and the Balrog's whip wraps around his leg. Like at some point he lets go, mm-hmm. but that point was inevitable. So, uh, yeah, as for COVID, you know, I think it's it, it's not, see, okay, collapse will not save us from ourselves. There's no such thing, okay, I could be wrong here, but I'm just going to lay this out, okay? Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as 
a collapse so total that we're that we have to change. What what these crises do is that they make our choice more stark. They make it more clear what exactly we are choosing. So I've I've written a book on climate change, and one of the things I say is that climate change isn't going to save us. We're not going to all of a sudden be forced to be ecological because otherwise we're not going to survive. Uh, in fact. Um, that whole mindset of respect nature because otherwise we won't survive, respect nature for its use to us, mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not the transition. The transition is respect nature because we see it as a full sacred being. So that choice, you know, we could cut carbon emissions to zero with, with geoengineering, you know, and carbon sucking machines and, and, and continue at the same time to destroy, to lay waste to the biosphere. And we'll have, it won't be a global warming crisis, it'll be some other crisis. Mm -hmm. We will not be forced to choose. Same thing with COVID. We are being shown the direction we've been moving in. Nothing that's happened under COVID is new. The obsession with safety, the distancing from each other, social distancing. I mean, you know, we were getting less and less social Already, more and more friendship was moving online. More and more of education was moving online. More and more shopping was moving online. The, the you know, local place-based community was in decline for a long, long time before COVID. So it's showing us, here is what you've been choosing, humanity. Here, let me show you the destination. Let me accelerate it for you so that you can choose all the more clearly because before it wasn't quite clear. It, you were kind of unconsciously choosing something. And now here, here's what life will look like. Do you want that? And maybe as a collective, we're saying, yeah, we'll keep going with that. Okay. The next crisis will be a further clarification of our choice. And I don't know how, I guess it's just a matter of um, when will we choose life? Mm-hmm how much of what's good and beautiful has to die before we turn to a different choice. And I guess I'm here and, and, the, and you're here and the medicines are here to empower our choice with a clear view of what's real. And it's the trust that, that if I show you what's real, you will choose differently. Hmm. That's what the medicines are saying. You know, this leads me to asking you about how we prepare ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally for a more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. You know, I love this notion that, that it's like we can hold an inner vision of a more harmonious chapter of human history and that that vision actually becomes something that then in turn shapes us, that we have to become the people who can anchor that vision. So it's like, Let's say we're using the analogy of um, we've clearly pushed off the one shore of safety. <laughs> we're collectively in a boat. It, we're hitting really choppy water. We've completely now realized that there is no solid ground to stand on. The next shore is not in our sight. What do we have to let go of 
at this critical moment in time, not just to prepare ourselves for landing on that next shore, but for making it through these choppy waters. What would you say is like the primary things like we really need to cultivate, whether it's like mindsets, what I call heart sets or skill sets that will really allow us to like actually physically embody the people who can live harmoniously on this planet? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm having trouble answering that because, you know, it's not, maybe it's not a universal question. What, what do we need to let go of? Maybe it's a different answer for every person. And the important thing is to recognize that there is something to let go of, something that's weighing heavy right now and to trust the readiness to let go and to, to know yourself as someone who has the courage to let go when the moment comes. Maybe you let go when you're tired, you know, maybe you're like holding this, this rope to the anchor, you know, and, and, and you become tired and you're just like, I can't hold on anymore. Mm -hmm. That's not something you can make yourself do. This is like th this attitude of the war on the self is so subtle. Mm. Like just questions like this. What do I have to do? What's the next thing I have to do? Imagine if you're a baby being born and, you know, you're talking to your life coach and you're like, well, you know, I'm afraid I'm not going to get born here. You know, this is looking really bad. <laughs> The womb is squeezing me, you know, and I don't think I can make it through this passage. Mm -hmm. What do I have to do? Mm -hmm. You know, actually, you're going to be born. Mm -hmm. And your struggle in response to these titanic pressures bearing down on you is part of the process. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't have to tell a baby how to do it. Mm -hmm. The baby's responses help the birth. You know, it's it's much easier to to deliver a live to 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 birth a live baby than a than a, a stillborn. Mm -hmm. Like there's, you know, life is part like our aliveness is part of our um of part of what sees us through the birth. Anyway, but inherent in that answer, though, Charles, you're also pointing to the second part of that question, which is. What are what can we cultivate? What can we focus on cultivating? And you named courage and that these are these are maybe one could argue or maybe not that that's a universal heart set and trust trust that we'll know when the time is right to let go, like with the example of Gandalf or yeah. that I'm I'm tired and it's clear I need to let this go at this point. And I appreciate your perspective mm -hmm. on like that subtle sort of like war on self, as you call it. And I, I do really appreciate that. Um, and let's say like we're, we're framing it from like a self love perspective that it, it isn't inherently sort of self-critical, like the whip on the back that it's actually like, I want to yeah. love my way to the other shore for the sake of life, for the sake of humanity. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about trust then. Um, 
I've noticed, maybe you're, maybe you're different, but I've noticed that I can't actually make myself trust somebody. Either I trust them or I don't, or maybe I trust them to some extent. You know, there's a, a level of trust that's there or it's not there. I can make myself pretend to trust somebody. I can say I trust somebody, but do I actually trust that person? Some people, I, I, I see them once and I just trust them. Like I would, you know, put my child in their hands. Like it's just obvious that in other people, like I have every reason why they're totally reliable and I just don't trust them. So when I think about the, the, the capacity of, of trust, trust in the process, trust in the orchestrating intelligence of this world, um, Again, it's not, how do I make myself trust this? Yet there is work to do. There is a process of cultivation. And it, it is a little counterintuitive to the mind that is steeped in separation, domination, force. And what that process is, is, is the process of attention. So I find the place that does trust that does trust the process, that does trust this intelligence, that does know that a more beautiful world is possible, that there is a path. And that can coexist with profound despair. But there's also this knowledge, there's also this trust, it's there. Maybe it's a tiny little flicker, but it's there. And I can, give my attention to that. And that attention kindles that flame. Um, you know, it, 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 it fans that flame. It nourishes it. And it's not only my attention, but like what even points my attention there? That might be a psychedelic journey mm -hmm. or that might be uh, a teacher, you know, that might be, or an experience that puts me in that state of trust. And when I'm put in that state, I know that it's not, um, I, it, there's a familiarity there. It might be a very deep echo. It might be something that I haven't even known in this lifetime, but I'm sure you understand what I'm mm -hmm. saying when I speak of a homecoming, mm -hmm. you know, it's our native territory. Mm -hmm. So that would be the second practice then. Um, to when that gift is given of home to receive it fully, mm -hmm. to be grateful for it, to know that it's precious, to, to trust. I mean, there again, it's coming back to giving attention mm -hmm. to that preciousness, to that gratitude. Ultimately, our only power is the power of attention. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. I hold the perspective that, or the narrative, the, the story I tell myself is that um, these altered states of consciousness and the psychedelic landscape can actually act as a very advanced training ground to foster more resilience in us emotionally, mentally, physically, to navigate through times from a place of more centeredness, you know, and groundedness. 
it's taught me so much about trust, you know, that through the most challenging moments of ayahuasca ceremonies, knowing that actually I'm going to get through this. And now I draw upon that strength and I bring mm -hmm. that actually onto my path every day as I walk. And I'm, I mean, we all encounter enormous amounts of challenges throughout day-to-day -day reality, subtle, subtle things that are, we don't even consider as traumas, but that, you know, really deeply impact our psyche and our emotional bodies that we just take for, oh, this is just life now. And, and so I, I, I frame it that way, actually, that our psychedelic experiences can shape us into more heart-centered leaders that can embody the narrative of change and embody who we need to become to anchor a more harmonious future into reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the, the psychedelic medicines are, are, they act in so many ways, you know, mm -hmm. and what I was talking about is just one Mm -hmm. of the ways. I mean, they can even be medicinal on a purely physical level. You know, mm -hmm. they can be neuroregenerative. Um, and uh, maybe and there's another question kind of lurking in all of this, mm -hmm. um, which is like, I'm imagining a, a voice saying, so all we have to do is take this medicine. And I think that there's an aspect of community that's really important here because like this, this scenario that we, that we mentioned earlier about, about, you know, you take this, you go on this trip, you know, you have this incredible experience and then you're back into your reality. Well, our reality is socially held. Like we hold each other in reality. And if we have enough people in our sphere who are who have experienced a different reality, if there's enough of us, we can hold each other in that reality and remind each other that acting from this place of interbeing is not crazy. Like you weren't imagining things, this is real. It's, it's like, I have this image of, of a drowning man, <clears throat> you know, in, in this choppy water, <clears throat> getting pummeled by waves and, you know, like, tugged under by the undertow and coming up for a desperate gasp of air and seeing the sky and then getting pulled under again and coming up desperately again and getting sucked under. And then he comes up and there's somebody else who has come up at the same moment and they cling on to each other and then they both get sucked under, but they come up again and now there's three or four people and 20 people. And eventually, and the more people there are, the more they're able to hold each other together above the surface. Mm -hmm. And, and that's why community is so important around psychedelics, why it can't just be like mm -hmm. you're, you know, in your own room, like now there's a, 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 a nascent trend toward online ceremonies, mm -hmm. you know, and, and doing psychedelic work over, over Zoom and, you know, I understand like, yeah, this is a response to the circumstances that we're in, but <sighs> I don't think we should resign ourselves to that. There's so much that happens in physicality. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, we, I was just, I was on uh, clubhouse last night and, um, you know, it's okay, but I'm like, it's not like a cocktail party mm -hmm. where, where you, can overhear another conversation 
and randomly drift from one to another and bump into somebody who also overheard that conversation. Mm -hmm. Like there's so much uh, complexity and dimensionality that that happens in physical place Mm -hmm. that does not happen in the controlled interactions that are mediated by technology. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, yeah, so I wanted to, to add this element of community because these questions of like what like this is what the modern mind does. It makes it about me. It's a question about self, the separate self. How do I do it? What do I do? How do I, you know, integrate the medicine? And really these, if it is only a question of how do I do it, mm-hmm. we're only going to get so far. Right. Because generally speaking, humans don't have the capacity to hold a story on their own. Mm-hmm. If you hold a story that is completely divergent from the social story around you, guess what? You're crazy. Like that is why they lock people up. People who are listening, hearing voices no one else hears and mm-hmm. and operating by by patterns that no one else sees. Like that's called paranoia, right? That's called schizophrenia. Uh, it's only <clears throat> like we can't hold a reality by ourselves. Mm-hmm. We we hold it in agreement. We hold it in story. Mm-hmm. And and story and agreement are how we human beings create reality. That's our primary technology. All other technology comes from that, whether it's, you know, electronic, like conventional technology, or it's the technology of ritual. Mm -hmm. It's all about shared meanings Mm -hmm. and symbols. So anyway, getting super no, metaphysical here. But. I really appreciate that. You know, when you asked that question, the, that sort of underlying question around, you know, so just take the medicines. My first thought was, no, I don't I don't think that that is it's not a panacea. It's, you know, for me, in addition to like the community, it's also like the framework that we the conceptual framework that we work within. You know, now we could call it set and setting mindset and environment, which also includes right. how we relate to other people, which I'm so curious about, like conceptual frameworks that can also that you might have found that act as like a really helpful psychedelic roadmap. Like for me, you know, when you talked about this, um, yeah, the connection piece, I've been studying Pema Chodron's work for about 15 years. I found her work while I was in a depression. And I remember listening to one of her audios and she was like, the secret to healing, you know, like if you really want to know the secret. And I was like, I remember the moment of being like, whew, she's like on the edge of my seat. Like, I'm ready to do anything. Tell me, you know? And it was like, you have to reach out of the cocoon and make contact. And I thought to myself, like, really? That's, that's the solution. And it was so profound for me, being in a depression where it's that experience of being in a small, dark room, isolation, cutting myself off from other people, and that the solution was stepping outside of the room and just even making contact with another human fundamentally in and of itself. And so the, that framework, that conceptual framework, Eastern philosophy has been for me my primary roadmap and same with quantum mechanics. It's been another very valuable roadmap. Um, do you feel like riffing on either of those two? Do you have other conceptual frameworks that have been like interesting yeah. roadmaps for the psychedelic territory specifically? Yeah, it totally makes sense when 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 we understand ourselves as not discrete, separate units, but as uh, 
a nexus of relationship, then of course, if you're cut off from your relationships, you wither. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening to an awful lot of people under lockdown. Mental health problems are skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. You know, psychiatric wards are overflowing. Um, and, and even physical health, uh, the, the biggest determinant of uh, chronic disease is loneliness. Mm -hmm. It's not smoking, it's not drinking. People who smoke and drink and have an active social life are healthier than abstemious people who are alone. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, and, 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 and so it comes down to, I mean, if you're asking for a framework, um, it's just validating. I mean, quantum mechanics says it too. Like in quantum mechanics, existence is relationship. It's called a measurement. If you don't take a measurement, then that electron does not exist in, in a, at a point in space and time. Mm -hmm. It is a field of potential. It is a field of probability. It only exists when you come into relationship with it. You only exist if you are in relationship. If you go into a sensory deprivation tank, like you stay there long enough, your identity begins to dissolve. If you're put in solitary confinement, you're, you, you fall apart mm -hmm. unless you're able to connect to some, I mean, there are other ways to connect. Um, Timothy Leary, when he was in solitary confinement, he didn't go crazy. Um, he just meditated and meditated and meditated. Mm -hmm. But, but you know, the principle is still, still remains that, that sanity and health depend on relationship. And um, when I go into a psychedelic experience, I don't know if this is helpful, but, but I, I really conceive of it as entering into a relationship with this mm -hmm. being. Like I see the, the chemical or the plant as a being um, and as far as like set and setting go, for me, the most important thing is who I'm with, like who is sitting with the, you know, sitting, who's the sitter in the experience or who's giving the, the, giving the medicine or holding the space. Um, it's not just biochemistry that's happening here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm not actually an experienced psychonaut, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I can probably count my psychedelic trips on my fingers and toes. I like how you added Almost. in toes there. Almost. <laughs> uh -huh. Do yeah. you, do you, have you noticed like any overlap yeah. between your, you know, metaphysical line of inquiry and your psychedelic experiences? Usually my psychedelic experiences are very physical. <laughs> um, like things happen to my body. Um, it's not, I don't get downloads usually on my psychedelic experiences. I get downloads in other ways. In what other ways? I go for walks. Mm -hmm. It's just that simple. Totally there for me too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I pretty much start tripping when I, when I do that, you know, if, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes I have visions and stuff, but they seem subsidiary to, uh, something else that's happening. When you say physical, do you think that there's like some undoing 
physiologically of narratives, trauma, you know, looking at the intersection between uh, the narratives we tell ourselves, how that shapes our reality, but then also how, you know, imprints from childhood traumatic experiences shape our narratives. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's truth in saying that our stories create our reality. Our stories create our systems, you know, that the mythology is primary, but it's also true that our realities create our stories. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like all of a sudden you had a bad idea that the world is out to get you. You know, that's probably a result of trauma. And so the the experience then generates the story and then the story generates further experiences and they, they form a holding pattern that can be, and it, it's physical too. You know, it's in the tissues mm-hmm. also. So the the when that holding pattern, which is itself a being and a state of being, when that has reached its maturity and is ready to transition, then an intervention on any of those levels can precipitate that healing process. Mm-hmm. So, because it's important to, to like psychedelics are not the only way to heal. Mm-hmm. Like there are profound healing modalities that operate on other levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I hesitate to say that, you know, these are an indispensable medicine, but I know that they're a very important medicine. And I think that they're, you know, on a collective level right now, um, I think they're pretty indispensable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is why so many people are now, you know, at the forefront, you know, especially in my own community, colleagues who are weaving together other modalities, you know, and I think we're just scratching the surface of what's possible in terms of combining different modalities with something that allows us to get out of our frame of reference and be able to fundamentally shift our perceptual field of awareness and potentially access different parts of our consciousness that we we can't normally access in waking consciousness. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I'd just love to invite you to share anything else that might be at the forefront of your mind. What's just coming to me is, is you know, here... Yeah, you know, here I'm on this interview, you know, I'm um, on some level supposed to redeem your choice of having me on by saying smart things or wise things or something, you know, and, and that is, yeah, it's not a bad thing. I mean, it's, but it's, it's part of a, uh, of a culture that uh, the culture of the expert, you know, and one of the the things that happens with psychedelics is this humbling where it's not just me. A lot of people describe just being like almost thrown to your knees in awe of the majesty and vastness and mystery of this universe. And um, for some reason, I just want to invoke that not as like, you know, some kind of modesty or something like that. But if but if if the listeners have had this experience of just like wading knee deep into this ocean of of mystery, like this vastness of existence of which one lifetime 
is like a scrap of paper flying out the window. Like that, on that scale. Um, and in which the global situation now and all of our problems and our personal problems, like these are just tiny filaments in a incomprehensible weave of, of stories. Uh, I want to just remind the listeners mm. of that. I want to presence that. Um, and the mind wants to be like, oh, okay, so that means that none of this is important. You know, what's happening in the world? No, that's not what it means. It's simply to hold that experience, to visit that experience sometimes, to invoke it sometimes. Um, and not to make it mean that, you know, this life is not important or these problems are not big or something like that. No, it's not to make it mean anything, but it's to, you know, the Peruvians who carry a mesa, you know, these, these this bundle of sacred stones, like that's one of them in, in the mesa, like this, you take it out sometimes. Um, and maybe sometimes you take out the stone of, of that connection, that gratitude, uh, that that like all of the the most sacred places that psychedelics have taken you, like those are stones in the mesa. That and and just to take it out one time. And so right now I'm I'm just inviting everybody to take out that one hmm. of being thrown to your knees in abject humility at the vastness of the mystery and the hugeness of experience and the the smallness of ourselves, our lives, our problems, our individuality, mm -hmm. to like hold that together for a, a viewing. Thank you for invoking that, that sense of awe in the mystery and like really zooming out and taking that larger perspective. Yeah. Yeah. These medicines have so much to offer us. I, I feel so grateful, uh, you know, in, the, in this last trip, there was like a whole, I don't know, long stretch where I could only say thank you. That was like the only words that could come out of my mouth. Yes, no, and thank you. Mm. Those are the three primal things. Mm -hmm. You know, any organism, like even a bacteria, has yes and no. It moves towards the food, it moves away from the danger. Mm -hmm. Yes, no. And the synthesis integration transcendence built on yes and no is thank you. Mm. That's the, the third thing. Well, thank you. Thank you for who you are, the way that you think, the way you communicate. Well, thank you for hosting this conversation. I um, really enjoyed it and really, uh, yeah, this is a realm that's that's growing in importance in my life. Yeah, It's not like, oh, I did it in my 20s and now, you know, I'm set. It's uh, more relevant now than ever for me. Mm. So, thank you. yeah, thanks for, for uh, inviting me on. Thank you, Charles. It's a pleasure. Hi, friends. 
Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me about my one-on-one coaching, about my upcoming group programs and my microdosing mastermind, or if you'd like to book me on your podcast or in your clubhouse, if you are on that app, then please reach out through my website, livefreelauraD.com, or feel free to hit me up on Instagram at livefreelauraD. I am so thrilled to leave you with this song by Shyla Ray called Existence. Once again, I am Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time. Living